Greetings. Thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I'm your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura, promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life, all to the glory of God and praise to his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Again, a word about our sponsors. CR101 Radio Network is a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. Go to cr101radio.com, cr101radio.com for information on that. Also, consider taking a look at uh, gcsapprenticeship.com. For GCS Apprenticeship Program that is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can be inspired and equipped to get involved with the task and honor of being a Christian teacher or owning and operating their own Christian schools. Again, gcsapprenticeship.com is where you can go for that. Today is going to be a little bit loose. It's going to be about weak and beggarly Christians. Weak and beggarly Christians, of course, that comes from the uh, text that comes out of Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 8. And I am going to read that out of the King James Version because that is the version that I have memorized since I was a kid. And so that is what I read the best when I read things to other people. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant though he be Lord of all. But he is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. And so I'm going to stop there and make my point, because that is the question I want to ask, and very much so in the same sentiments. I want to say it to those who consider themselves Christians who may hear this abroad in Internet land and um, consider what the Spirit of God is saying unto us in these words. Now... After you have known God, or rather are known of God, 
How could you possibly turn again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? We all have to remember that there was a time in our life, regardless of who we are, when we um, did not have that realization where we were known of God. We may look at it as if we have known God, but it was rather that we were known of God. God knew us. And after that revelation has taken place, how could one turn again to something weaker than that happening, weaker than that revelation in our life to bring us um, into bondage? How could we possibly give ourselves over to anything um, other than that? That's a great question, I think. And it's a question that really spins around and turns in the minds of many people um, as they grapple with certain aspects of theology, whenever they grapple with the uh, idea of, uh, for instance, the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, uh, the idea and the uh, doctrine that says that if God's grace has truly moved your heart by faith and that you are one of his elect, you will persevere into the end um, and you know be saved. That is what, uh, in a nutshell, the perseverance of the saints is all about, is that God will not cut his work short in righteousness, that he will He will do that work in your life and in the earth. And so, you know, once a person has this knowledge of being known of God and knowing God, how could they possibly turn back to anything weaker in the world than that? You know, people so oftentimes use so many different things in the world um, as their crutch to keep them up while they're in this life rather than going back to the rock of their salvation, rather than going back to this one realization and this one definitive moment in the life of a Christian where they are absolutely assured that they are um, one of God's elect, that they have the, the spirit of God in their heart that's moving by faith. And so, you know, what we see in the world today is pretty sad. Again, I think I start every message uh, podcast <laughs> that way these days. It's pretty sad what's going on. And, um, you know, a lot of what we are experiencing here in the world today flows from a, a really poor theological foundation that has been unchecked and allowed to propagate and it's very much so that wrong theology, as it appeals to our mind and not as what comes out of the scripture, is easier to attain. I won't say it's easier to attain because once you see it and realize it and think about it just a little bit, you realize that's how it had to have worked in your life when you, just as Paul says, were known of God or knew God, you have that time, you, you know God, and then realize you're known of God, and God knows you, you know God, and that uh, that is a powerful moment. But to our, our human mind, there is such a desire for us to focus and dwell on the fact that we know God, right? That we know about God or we know something of God. We know something that God wants us to do or something that God wants out of us. And um, that's one of those situations that 
believe it or not, are linked to the weak and beggarly elements that Paul is dealing with here in Galatians, which he's dealing with some things that are a little bit more fleshly, but they come out of that understanding. They come out of that um, that idea of uh, I know God and not making the full impact of being, you know, knowing that God knows you and has known you since the foundation of the world and has had uh, your reproaches and your sins placed on Christ when He died at the you know moment of His death on Golgotha. And that, uh, in fact, Christ, since the foundation of the world, had an agreement with the Father that he was going to bear your sins in a promise and covenant that he had made with the Father that was as good as done from the time the agreement took place, which is in a time um, so perpetual and ununderstandable to our comprehension. It's only probably best summarized in the very name of God, Yahweh, he that is. And so it, within that understandable space of time, we understand that God had a trifold agreement that took place between Father, Son, and Spirit to affect all of the ends of salvation that would happen for every believer that he has chosen. And so, you know, what happens in our society oftentimes is reflecting what is inside of a person's understanding of that agreement. That's oftentimes referred to as a covenant theology, what I just described in theological terms. Um, and when it goes astray, when that understanding of those agreements go astray and the understanding that God has the ability to will all things after his own counsel that he has that ability to do as he pleases in the earth, that whenever we call him Lord, um, capital L-O-R-D, uh, which is a reflection or a, a, a imitation of the name Yahweh, um, we are calling him Lord because he is the sovereign over heaven and earth. He is the sovereign over all existence. And the thing that he has done to us and taking us out of the state of servitude that we were in and placing us in a state of sonship, um, though we were sons all along because of that agreement that had taken place, we um, oftentimes have the uh, forgetfulness of that uh, happening and how it happened. We don't apply it across the board in one consistent theological way in what I would call and many have called a systematic theology that takes into account everything from that time of perpetual um, beginning all the way until the end perpetual as well. And that we actually have a God that is so sovereign and he has so much lordship that he can control the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And so the son who has the mind of Christ and the spirit in his heart as one who knows where we should go for answers and understanding, um, we know that we should go to the rock of our salvation, while uh, others may be, in fact, sold into bondage and stay in bondage. You know, in what we read in, in um, Galatians was that a son does not differ from a servant. So there are two categories. We have the servant and then we have the son. We know by the law of God and um, particularly what we can read about in 
uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 6, that there are different um, statuses of uh, relationships between uh, a man with his poor brother. And so, for instance, uh, we are told that it was supposed to be that a righteous nation would lend to many nations, but they should not borrow from those nations. And so that should be the Christian mentality. They should reign over many nations and desire to reign over many nations, but they should not reign over us. We should have no foreigner reign over us. And I think that applies across the board, both in the terms of nationality or ethnicity, as well as it would apply in terms of faith, in, or in terms of a Christian country. And so in Deuteronomy 15.7, we're told, If there be among you a poor man, one of your brethren, within any of your gates, uh, in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, ye shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but ye shall open thine hand wide unto him, and ye shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wants. And then we're all given a warning that beware uh, that you uh, do not have a wicked thought in your heart that you're not going to give him what he needs because uh, the year of Jubilee where that debt will be canceled would be at hand. And so how awesome is it to apply that understanding of servitude to what we read in Galatians chapter 4 that God actually um, desiring his brethren, Christ's brethren, as a matter of fact, and uh, to be redeemed at, because they are poor men, they are poor and needy, and unable to help themselves, um, that he will stretch forth his hand and not harden his heart to us, though because we are his brethren, and he will not shut his hand from us, though we are poor, and he will give us sufficient of our need of that which we want. And so how great is it that the more that we want from the Lord, the more he's willing to give us, and that since we know there's absolutely no thought in God's wicked heart, in Christ's wicked heart, that he will give us all that we need and forgive our sins and our debts, our poverty at the end, and allow us to be accepted into the family of God in that way because we were one of his. And so if we apply that mentality across the board why would we ever want to turn back to the weak and beggarly elements that we came from? Why would we ever want to go back to the weak uh, and poor status that we were in before God uh, had stretched out his hand wide to us, before God had um, given us sufficiency for our need and that which we want? We never really would. A true believer would never go back on that um place in his life. And so it's not even within the scope of God to redact that and to take that back because he's going to give it. And the only person who would desire to be the poor man again in that situation and not take all the grace and mercy God's willing to bestow on him by the work of Jesus Christ and not hardening his heart towards us and not shedding his hand towards us is one who is truly, in fact, weak and poor. They're beggarly. And they're bound in bondage to the elements of the world. They're, they're one who could never really give it up. They never really gave it up. They just kind of freeloaded on God for a while. They didn't really believe 
that he did anything great for them because right away they took all that gift that was given to them, whatever blessings of grace that God bestowed upon them um, in, in, in helping them just on the human level, not even carrying that over to the true perseverance of the saint, to the true saint, but just on the human level, they take all of that good and all of that um, purity that God gives and blesses with, and they just waste it to become poor again. There's no one in their right mind who would want to do that, but not everyone's in their right mind. Some are not part of the family of God. Some are servants. But we don't know who is who and what is what in that way because we know that there are some who are going to have the mentality of a servant and they are not going to be sons. God knows who they are. God knows who they are because they are known of God. They don't just know God, but they are known of God. God knows who they are. And so those who are bound and stuck on the weak and beggarly elements of the world are the ones that you can examine and know. While you don't know what's going to happen by the end of their life, you can examine and know that they are the ones who are poor and weak and bound to the elements or the rudiments of this world. They're bound to the things of this world. Okay? And so very much so when you take this idea and you somewhat look at it through the a Christian construct, you would also see Deuteronomy 28, 43, and 44 that speaks of the curse of this exact same thing. It says, The stranger that is within thee, which would be the servant, according to Deuteronomy, um, prior stated, uh, the one who is not of your brother, who is within thee, he will get up above thee very high, and then you shall come down very low. He will lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. We have a way to look at what we are talking about right here and see a justice and a dividing line, a scale of balance, whatever analogy we want to use, to see where we are in certain things in our society and to see where we are in certain things that we are considering. It should not take a lot of brain power to realize that not only did a lot of this start with um, you know, racial tensions going way, way back, the Civil War probably, um, and what we're seeing in America today with all the hatred that's now being espoused towards the South and to Southern Confederates and, and things like that, and this rewriting of history that's wanting to be taken place, uh, the destroying of monuments and bridges and all kinds of stuff that's going on. But what this is showing us is that um, whether it's been allowed or, or, or not or how it works, there is a stranger or strange force that has gotten above that which is considered the airship or the sonship, okay? And so Christ's brethren are at this time not in control of the nations God has given them to be heads over. They are becoming the tails. And so 
on a religious level or a faith-based level, Christianity is at an all-time point where it is being pushed down, 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 down. And it's wanted to be the tail. Christians are being persecuted now. It's not we will be persecuted. Blood hasn't flown yet. Uh, well, sort of hasn't flown yet, uh, just because you're a Christian. But it's on its way, and a lot of persecution has already started. A lot of things are... Um, in the making to cause a lot of trouble in the future. And what we are seeing is many, many people, as I've heard it said by others, a wave of apostasy taking place where those are, who were not of us are going out from us, and so they are, they are going to the weak and beggarly elements of the world, and they're finding the solace in the world of the things of the world, and they are not grasping to... God, they're not clinging to his promises, standing on his rock in order to uh, substantiate uh, who they are in this world and, and the, the position that they take. They're just kind of going with everything. And so that mentality is a weak and beggarly mentality. It's showing us in dividing the wheat from the chaff. It is showing that there is so many in this thing we call the church or Christianity or whatever word you want to use that are, in fact, slaves and not sons and daughters. They are not children of the kingdom. Okay? And like I said, <clears throat> that's not for us to judge in the sense of how we're going to treat others and not offer them the gospel again and call them back to repentance and things like that. But what it's showing us is that they do not have the mind in them that was in Christ Jesus, okay? The spirit that comes into the heart crying, Abba, Father, where there is nothing that you can replace that relationship between a father and a son, um, a father and a child, a brother and a and brethren with, okay? There rather is a slave mentality that they just are kind of bound to God, and some people are even abandoning their bondage to God. They have no bondage to God either. They're not bound to him. They're only bound to him in the things that they personally can't break, the bonds that they can't break. And so what we're seeing here in our society at this time of trial in 2020, from the time really COVID-19 started, things have ramped up exponentially. We are preparing for what could be huge changes in the future uh, of the economy and um, food shortages and, and all kinds of things like that. And on top of that, we have this looming fear of COVID-19, the dreaded coronavirus, novel coronavirus. I'm not even sure what the, what the novel thing's all about. It doesn't seem so novel to me. But um, we have this thing, and it's killing people, sure. Is it killing mass amounts of people? No. Is it spreading like wildfire? So they're telling us. But then again, one in three tests, you know, are accurate or something like that now. I don't know. The numbers change so quickly. And this is the thing. We all know that. We all know that the numbers are changing. We know the masks don't, don't work. They admit the masks don't work. Um, but yet we're clinging to these weak and beggarly elements from this world as our hope and our salvation. Some people may just be doing it just to get along. Sure. 
Some people are doing it just because that's the right thing to do, I guess. You know, if you want to shop at Walmart or some other store like that, you got to put on your mask. I understand that. Um, I haven't done that yet, but that's the way it is. And I understand there are some people that are just doing it to get along and they don't really put any stock into it. But there are a lot of people <laughs> that are putting their stock in some weak and beggarly element of this world right now and are scared out of their mind about what's going to happen in the future. They don't know because they have no faith. They are not sons. They're slaves. They're under the the elements of this world. They're under the delusions of this world. And the sin of this world is crushing them. And they have no way out because God has not either taken them out yet and given them the spirit, or they're not chosen to have it. One way or the other, they are not the son of God, or child of God that has the spirit of his son in their heart crying, Abba, Father. And so they're yet slaves, not children. And if they're not a child, then they're not an heir of God, and they are not an heir through Christ. And so they don't know God and are not known of God, in fact. And so, in a theonomic mentality, I think we should be settled in a Christian reconstruction standpoint that we have a task before us. And in some ways, it seems like the wrecking ball's coming down the pike, um, and we should be preparing all over the board to rebuild, but we aren't. To uh, my sadness also, we aren't. We're divided. And uh, Christians seem to have the hardest time working together now more than ever. And I'm sure that there are the unbelievers that are out there who are trying their best to keep this uh, division going because there is organized evil that for some reason organizes way easier than righteousness organizes. And um, at least in my experience of, of reading and watching uh, to see that. Um, and so... We should be in a mentality of seeing the wrecking ball come down and want to start rebuilding on the ruins here soon. But we all know that this is such a huge thing that it seems as if the army that God has raised up to himself is just out the lunch, as the, as the saying goes. They're just, they're not really sure how to react to it yet. We have our John MacArthur's that are standing their ground and not shutting their churches down. And so, of course, he's making some big wakes. Hopefully, he's going to uh, wake some people up from the dead and uh, with, with his preaching and things like that going on in California. But by and large, we are not seeing Christians band together just under the banner of the cross and display it as their banner. Rather, what we're seeing is soft core, um, weak and beggarly elements being utilized and kind of just it almost seems like feeling uh feeling it out that they're just hoping that it all doesn't fall apart so that they can keep getting their social security check or their welfare check or or their um uh healthcare, their Medicaid, whatever it is, you know, just keep the system going until I'm dead. Okay? And so even among your Christians who seem to be able to talk about this, there's still not a full-blown realization that this is a war, that this is an assault against the people of God 
and that it is focused at those who truly have faith in Christ, who have that spirit in their heart by faith. Okay? And so, you know, it's amazing to me that this mentality did not seemingly exist in the foundations of the United States and um, in the West as a whole. It was just not the fearful mentality of the people. I mean, when people came to the United States and, as they said, to build the gospel or build the kingdom um, of Christ uh, here on these shores in North America, they suffered all. They, they gave up all. They gave up everything they knew. They gave up home. They gave up land. They gave up uh, you know what freedoms they had in that land, and and they came to a place where there was hostile Indians uh, that did not want white men here for good reason. Um, it was their homeland, and uh, these people were different and bringing a different religion. They were bringing a different way of life, and so they immediately walk off the boat and and become strangers in a strange land that is hostile to them. Um, the land was treed, it needed cleared, the land was um, in need of, of amendments to make it work for them, they had to cut trees down, you know, they, they had to plow all their, their, their crops in, and a lot of them had a really hard time getting there, uh, getting to the United States, and some of them even sold themselves into a form of bondage, pretty high interest slavery, to uh, as indentured servants to get to the United States or to pay back whatever it is that they spent to get here. And so that mentality just kind of amazes me that back then, though they could have stayed in England or Holland or Germany or Sweden or wherever they came from, they didn't. They chose reproach with the people of God more than the pleasures of sin in Egypt for a season, so to speak. And Maybe we just haven't got to that point yet where people have figured out what is it that we need to do and where is it that we need to go in order to avert this disaster. And, you know, I don't think a good answer exists that will fit everybody across the board, but I can't figure out for the life of me why people don't want to um prepare for that at this point, why they want to pretend as if life will go on as normal, like this podcast is going to be available uh, and the Internet's going to just always be there and that everything is just going to be as it is forever. And they're not preparing for the future. I just don't understand that. And um, I can't understand why those who um, have a better worldview and a better mentality um, about their spirituality, uh, it can justify being so complacent and not missionizing the, the American continent as they should, um, getting out there and really spreading the gospel a lot harder than we have been and using everything that we're given to the advantage of the kingdom um, at this time because now is a, a crucial time. And yes, it's going to come with persecution, but that's just what has to happen at times. And so that's just what it is. And so, you know, a lot of times we ask the question, I got off on a rabbit trail there a little bit, but we ask the question, you know, how did this happen and how did this change? How did that mentality change? And 
I have to conclude with something that comes out of church history. I'm going to use church history terms to just kind of broad brush the statement um, in talking about Arminianism and Pelagianism. Um, anybody can go and, and look that up uh, and find more information on what that actually means. But it seems to me, and I think it's pretty clear, that there is an adopted mentality of Arminius and Pelagius. Those are the founders of Arminianism and Pelagianism. Um, and now it has kind of gone down the road to Judicism, <laughs> to Judas, uh, so much that, you know, people are willing to sell the word of God for goods, for the weak and beggarly elements of the world that they're willing to turn to. They'll, they'll, they'll sell them out so that they can get what they think they want. So just a little background for those who may not know. Arminius, um, he was a, a Dutchman who, of course, was a teacher, and he taught that uh, man had some recourse to his own nature, I think would be the best way to put it, to help him achieve faith in God. And so somehow from his own nature, he wasn't totally depraved. He could find God. And that God has in some way relegated salvation to the free will and choice of man in choosing God. As opposed to the doctrine that I would hold, and that is way more consistent with Scripture, I believe, that God chooses whom he will unto salvation because man is totally depraved by his nature. And so that's pretty much a nutshell understanding of Arminianism. Now, before him, there was a man called Pelagius. And most people talk about what is in the world today as more of a semi-Pelagianism. It's kind of like half-hearted Pelagianism because Pelagius was a pretty pretty um, hardcore fellow. And so in a nutshell, uh, it's the endorsement of the idea that works do have merit in salvation, that you do merit salvation by your works in some way. And so Arminianism was really seated on top of Pelagianism in its teachings um, because both teachers out of church history taught effectively against salvation being by grace, that's the free gift of God, and then therefore is relegated to the glory of God to save sinners unto himself by his own will and purposes. And so it was against the idea ultimately of predestination and the idea that, uh, as Ephesians 1.4 says, that, that God can choose before the foundation of the world's. Um, but they didn't see it that way. Of course, they had their ways to tiptoe around all that. And so while the concept's now called semi-Pelagianism, um, it's often good works that are limited to believing in God for salvation of one's own human will that this is describing. And so it's just the believing in God that is part of your will and your works. You, your, your, your believing or your faith generated from your mind uh, is nowadays um, pretty much all you have to do, you know, ask Jesus into your heart, say the sinner's prayer, believe God will save you for a moment. You know, all that kind of thing is um, semi-Pelagianism because it's not all the way to the strict extremes of what uh, the teacher Pelagius would have taught, um, but it is still down the same road of understanding 
that you have to do something to be saved. And so, you know, Pelagius would have taught a traditional law as being part of that salvation as well. That would, um, you know, it would be they would be biblical laws, uh, much like what Paul would have been dealing with in Galatians four, while not not including in Pelagius' time circumcision. But um, whatever those were, that a person has to do this in order to be saved and to receive the Spirit of God, and 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 things of that nature. But it's these doctrines that have allowed so much fear to spread among those who call themselves Christians, while they will not call themselves. You know, these things are, are the other name. They don't like names at all. They don't like boxes. They don't like pigeonholes. And I'm just using these terms to kind of broad brush the opinions that are out there because it leads to a mentality similar to this, to what Pelagius or Arminius had. It leads to a mentality that is similar to that, which then leads to a mentality which is ready to accept the, be, the, the weak and beggarly elements to be in bondage to rather than a sufficiency that is in Christ alone. And so the question, of course, is why? Why even bring that up? Well, the doctrine that believes God is not Lord over time and space, and so like I said, essentially a belief that God is lim is a, a belief that he's essentially limited in his power people don't often think that way when it comes to these ideas but it's very much the case um because if you have a doctrine that believes that God is not lord over time meaning he can't predestinate and over space that is that he cannot do what he will in the world and that therefore as what history has done, what has been done in history and what is being done now and what will be done in the future, is all part of God's lordship, his sovereign nature, the sovereign nature of Yahweh being he that is in all times and spaces. Um, there is a belief that then God is limited in his power. And so it has to be acknowledged that if God is not sovereign over time and space, he's limited. And if he is limited in his power then he is limited in his power to save. And thus, we as men, who are part of time and space, are needed by God to help save our own selves. Okay, So this type of belief leads us to the idea that we must save ourselves. God is not sufficient in and of himself to save us, but that rather he needs us to do something. He either needs us to do something that believes uh, you know, we just need to believe in him, and that's enough for him to then help us the rest of the way. Or we need to continue to do things, and then he can help us the rest of the way. But it limits God's power to save, and it gives man pretty much, I don't know where you could draw the line on, a half ownership, three-quarters ownership of his own salvation that he has to save himself. So it's kind of like, you know, once you get things going, like the starter on your car, the engine will, will get started and, and the alternator starts pumping out juice uh, back to the battery and it, and it continues itself in, in a way, using the reservoir of the battery, of course, and burning its fuel. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you're the, you, you, you're the battery, you're the starter, um, and parts of the engine are you, but, you know, the one who put it all together to run that way is God or something, something like that uh, is about the best way I can put it. But that mentality gives man an awful lot of credit. 
And therefore, if God is in need of our help in terms of salvation unto eternal life, which is a pretty big deal to save the soul from, from death, uh, especially if you believe in eternal punishment and torture and hellfire, God's, you know, that's kind of like the bottom of the pit, and if you fall down there and get into it, then you're done. But God has this ability to save you from that. And so if God needs your help in terms of salvation unto eternal life to keep you from eternal death, to keep you from from that state, even if it is a believer that faith is only requirement of what he needs, even if it's just that you have to have faith or you have to have faith and do whatever. And that's the only requirement we need to do something for our own selves. Then fundamentally, we have assented our mind, we have agreed in ourselves and in our mind that God has needs of our help in the world also to bring about goodness and righteousness and godliness. And so, in effect, what we have done as we have seeded God's power to ourselves. And we have then the, we have fundamentally established that there is a a need for us in the world by God. God needs us to affect his good will and his pleasure. That his will is not sufficient in and of itself. He cannot work all things after his own counsel of his own will that he needs our help too, which some will say, well, that's because uh, God made it this way. And so, you know, he made us to be part of that will and, and things like that. And so, you know, then you you um, start getting into even deeper discussions of where God's sovereignty lies and why did he make it that way and things like that. But if God is in need of man's good works, okay, even if that is your mental belief in him, and not just merely allow for them, then God is constrained by the will of man. And that's what needs to be acknowledged. That it is um, man's good works that are going to then allow uh, God to do something. So God is constrained by man's will. If man chooses, he can do this. If he doesn't choose, he can do that. And he has needs to wait for man then. God has to wait for man to comply by some predetermined point of satisfaction or of some allowance of an outside force of God. Uh, this would be called Molinism, if anybody wants to look into it even more. Um, that There is like basically some force outside of God. Uh, I've never heard anybody say that, well, it's it's... It's another God, but it's something that even forces God or controls God or endows God to do what he needs to do. Um, there's this force on the outside that that uh, makes things have to happen that way and even makes God have to choose a certain way that he chooses because he's not in full control of time and space. And so then the best question anyone walking down these corridors will eventually have Okay, if you're walking down, uh, you know, Pelagianism, or you're walking down Arminianism, or you're walking down Molinism, which are all linked in their understandings of certain aspects, it will eventually lead one to, um, you know, come to the conclusion 
that God is not able to save in this world either. The best question anyone walking down those corridors will eventually have is, can God save me from my own faults and failures? Can he really do that? Because we call God a savior, but he's not much of a savior if he needs us to help save ourselves. And so people have equated this to all kinds of ideas like, you know, uh, God throws you a life raft and you got to swim to it or something like that. But the Bible's fairly clear in saying you're dead and sins and trespasses. And so we oftentimes say, well, how dead is dead? And you go to the book of Ezekiel and see the valley of dry bones dead. And you're like, yeah, that's pretty dead, baked in the sun, dead. And God breathes his spirit and gives them life and brings them back together. That's dead. And so there is no throwing life raft um, unless the life raft is the spirit of God that scoops you up and brings you together. And so going down that road eventually leads to this life that you're living, this belief you have boiling over uh, into the world and age that you live in. And it eventually concludes that God is functionally not the Lord. You may call him Lord and say he's more powerful than you because he created the heavens and the earth, but it kind of got away from him at some point. Things kind of went wrong. This isn't the way he really wants things in any regard. He doesn't have power to change it. And so it concludes that God is functionally not Lord over creation, over the heaven and the earth, and that it is not good, never was good. And so... Some then, at this point, have to make a choice. Some would cede power to Satan. They would say, well, there's this evil force that's almost as strong as God, but not quite, because God made it, and then you got that problem to deal with. And uh, it, it's given to Satan, evil Satan's deal. And then there's, the, there's fate. There's fatalists, where you have, well, there's just this fate. Time and chance is the you know verse that they, they would appeal to and say it happens to all, and therefore... There's that that is the force that's outside of God in the Molinist type perspective. And so eventually, this is what they have to do. You have to come up with a way to understand the world and why it is the way it is and why things are the way they are and construct your theology in a way that's not going to um, bump into the obvious errors in this line of thought. But it leads to a mentality that makes a believer weak and beggarly. Okay? Because they start to look for hope in other places of normally observable things, whether it's rituals that they do or they're helping God, like we've described, or, you know, first it starts with this I got to think about it, then it starts with well, if I do this thing, then God will be happy with me. If I pray this prayer, then God will be happy with me. If I. If I do this and do that and do this and do that, I'll keep saving myself with God. God will join up with me and he'll save me. But it's only because I joined up with him and I'm saving myself. Okay? And so whatever that observable authority we see in the world, the thing we see in the world that seems like the authority figure, it has to join up with. And then that doesn't change there whenever we start applying this mentality across the board and we see how that reaches out in the world we live in now, where people are way more apt to say, yeah, I believe in God. I, I kind of, you know, said amen to him at one point. Said, yeah, there's God. He died. Jesus got died for me. Everything's great. But I don't do anything for him. 
and and I'm not sure if he's in control of everything because I gotta agree with him. And then they look at the observable authority of the governments of the world or men of wealth or high figures, whether that's religious figures like the Pope or that's Donald Trump. Okay, and I don't know who in their right mind would even look to Donald Trump or Joe Biden or any of these other candidates that are running right now for any hope, because quite frankly, that's just completely hopeless, and we all know it. I don't, I don't care what opinion you're of. That's, it's just hopeless at that point if you're putting your trust in there. But that's where it leads people. It leads them to trusting in governments and institutions and, 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 and places and things, to trust in Caesar and the empire, okay, whatever it is the high priest in the temple, whatever. But the mentality, though common in the heathen world, when it is blended with Christianity, still is required to admit the words of Scripture if they believe in the Bible, which is that's what you're seeing peel off even more of this, is because a person who is truly deceived and they believe a lie... Though they say it is part of their religion and is biblical, because it has to come out of the Bible in order to be part of their religion, they eventually start doubting passages in Scripture, reinterpreting them in ways they haven't fully understood or, or don't apply themselves to, and then they bend the Word of God to their own understanding that they have come up with. And it has to be that way because, well, you have to read around verses that clearly says you're wrong that God is sovereign, that God does uh, do things after the counsel of his own will, all things after the counsel of his own will, actually, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It creates a paradox in the Christian who will say that, or will say Jesus is Lord, just a real simple statement. It creates a paradox because you don't really think he is Lord because you have to help save yourself. And if you have to help save yourself, then maybe someone else will be effective in saving you in ways God can't quite get to you because you're in the world. And so because the faithless in authority will give you works to save you, such as wear this mask, for instance, or separate yourself six feet. At some point, you have to realize these start to resemble faith-based or religious-type observances, especially when what science and medicine we do have speaks so clearly against it as not working, but people cling to it. People accuse Christians of that. Well, why do you pray? I mean, it's not going to help you. And in the end, we can say, because every knee should bow and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we pray to God knowing that his will will be done if he chooses to to do a thing, uh, it will happen. If he doesn't, we're okay with that too. But in the case of what we see when this um, mentality is then applied to the authorities or those who will just give you something to do, you start to see a quasi-religious system developing. You see a mask that is ritually put on when you go out in public. You see that we keep a distance of six feet between one another. We see a religious type observance that, you know, is 
almost ashamed to be normal at this point. Shake hands, give hugs, things like that. You can see how it's infiltrating into the home in certain cases. Okay? You know, just even even someone suggesting the idea that people who live in home need to not wear, or I mean need to wear face coverings while they're around one another is just completely stupid. But you can see that religious-type mentality, that faith-based mentality, that's starting to encroach into the Christian worldview, though it has nothing attached to it that can prove it to be effective. And though we say we believe Jesus is Lord and we believe Yahweh is the God of the universe and that sort of thing, we don't quite allow what science and logic has clearly demonstrated that would then attest to what is actually happening and then it would attest the truth. And anything true is good and godly because it's true. And all truth goes to God. All goodness goes to God. But if you have to fudge the numbers and you have to kind of change stuff a little bit and create this quasi-religious type system, then you're catering to a, a desire for faith in a person. Okay? And so the faithless that are in authority that don't believe in God, they don't believe in absolute truth, they're more than willing to give you something false to believe in just to keep your mind satiated. Or maybe worse, maybe to get you to do what they want you to do and believe they have a power to save you. And so what are they doing? They replicate the power that saves because you don't have your full faith in the sovereignty of God and in his lordship. What you have is your authority figure who will fill in that gap. He will cater by his power, what power he does have, to your desire for faith that you lack. Not faith in God, that God will fill in the gap as creator, but faith in the gap that says, I can save you, because you don't believe God can truly save you. And those are the type of people who will eventually want you to say that they have saved you. They're going to say, and they've already done this once in our United States uh, when numbers supposedly came down, whether they did or they didn't, I don't care. Um, they said, well, because we did this shutdown mandate thing, um, the numbers came down. Way to go. You did it. We can do this. And there's all these chants and cheers and all this nonsense going on. We can do this. No, you can't do this. You can't do anything. You can't do anything. There's no saving anyone here, especially with the nonsense that's being propagated. Okay? All it is is a charade to make you believe that your diseases have been cured based in the faith, and that's all it can be is faith because there's no substance behind it. We as Christians believe that Jesus Christ raised from the dead and with the account of many witnesses. We know God created the heavens and the earth. We know the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. We understand that that the Lord expresses himself regularly. And also, we have a personal relationship with Jesus. We have a personal relationship that speaks to our heart and calls us to say, Abba, Father, that we are his son and he is our father. 
so much so that we're willing to go to death if we have to, be subject to death if we have to, for his namesake. That's not the type of mentality you're going to get out of this fill-in authority that's been allowed to have its seat among you because of your Arminianism, Pelagianism, and Molinist mindsets. Okay? Where God is not truly sovereign, God is not Yahweh, God is not the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. They will institute themselves as the priest class. They will come in and be the people that you want them to be. They will pretend as if they can save you in this world. And so eventually Christianity has no application in this worldview. At some point, Christianity falls away. Jesus is not Lord. And the end goal of this mentality, which we know will never totally happen, because God will always have his faithful remnant that will bond to him. But that is the end goal of the wicked, because they don't know that. One must make up for God's inabilities with something in their worldview, is the point I'm trying to make. If we do not make it paramount in our life, as our ancestors did in the West, in England, Ireland, Scotland, Germany, Holland, pick the country. And of course, the United States and Canada, Australia. If you don't get back to that sovereignty of God in your worldview, that he is supreme, his word is supreme, that his law, his Torah, is the standard for right and wrong, good and evil. It is the standard of understanding blessings and cursings. In a society, we don't understand that and we allow this strange mentality to get above us and push us down very low. We are not keeping up the fight we are supposed to keep up, that we have been empowered to keep up. We have to make it paramount in our life that God is sovereign, that he is Lord, L-O-R-D, that he is Yahweh, he that is, in fact. And that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And that there's no room for the foolishness of the weak and beggarly elements of this world that desires us to return to it as if we do not know God. As if we do not know that we are known of God and that God knows us in fact. We have little resource in the world view to believe God can cut through our inabilities to save if we, don't, if we don't think that he can save us by his sovereignty and that he can give us a word to understand, that he can give us a law that's better than that which we have, that he can um, give us a better mentality than this fear-mongering that's going on today, and that we can have full assurance in the faith that God has given us and practice our faith, and desire the rights which we're going to take to ourselves one way or the other, whether it's through death or whether it is through um, freedom, liberty, to exercise our faith and our religion. We're going to do it one way or the other if we're true believers. But are we going to help hold the gap open to worship that way. And the only people that will hold that gap open, in fact, 
are those who are already resolved that God is sovereign. They're resolved that his ways are the right way and that there is an absolute right and an absolute truth in God's law that says this is right and this is wrong. And even if the rulers, the principality and powers and the magicians and the medical magistrates say that something is so when it is false, we know better. We can judge it by truth and the law of God and understand the way in which it should be. That's based on the fact that we know God is sovereign, that he's able to save, and that he has commanded and spoken to our hearts by faith. The only thing it can be linked to. In the Song of Moses, which is a really heart-moving song, it's pretty pretty long, it's almost as if um, what is spoken in the Song of Moses is just uh, kind of like coming to pass at certain points in America's history. It's kind of amazing. But Deuteronomy 32 is where the Long Song of Moses is. I'm going to start in 28. I'm sorry, 27. God says in the King James Version here, Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, lest they should say, Our hand is high, and Yahweh has not done all this. I'm talking about the destruction of the people. He says, Because they're a nation that's void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, except the rock had sold them and Yahweh had shut them up? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, their fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. And then here is what the sovereign Lord Yahweh says. Is this laid up, is this not laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures, treasury? To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. For Yahweh shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that there is power, their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. Here's where we are headed, brothers and sisters. We're heading down the road of the Song of Moses. And as we see the church turn from every form of weak, or towards every form of weak and beggarly element, like the wine that is rather the poison of venom, and we live among a nation that is no doubt at this point void of counsel, and we see a time of calamity coming upon us, we need to keep in mind and remember that as sons that have been purchased, that we still have a job to do. That as children who are bound to a sovereign Lord who 
has affected what is happening by his will, and that this is a punishment that is justly due, and that we cannot in any way deny that this is God's justice and and bringing about upon a nation that has not even thought about repenting seemingly. That one of the things that we perhaps can preach to our brethren, to our sisters out there, is just the simple reality of the law and the gospel. The sovereignty of God being the rock of that faith. That faith. Um, a doctrine that believes God is the Lord over time and space. Okay? A, a doctrine that teaches that God is in control and he is able to work all things after the counsel of his own will and he is able to strengthen us and he is going to give us life in his being. We're going to live, move, and have our being in him and that God will reward us according to the cleanness of our hands, David says, and that that cleanness of our hands can only be clean enough of course, if it's been washed in the water of Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> I was just thinking of some thoughts here about why I believe that um, so much of what's going on in our world is kind of becoming um, more prevalent in the world that we, we live in. And I really do think that we can lay it down at the feet of not having a good, strong worldview in the sovereignty of God and not having a full understanding of God's abilities and powers to um, cause the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of his elect in times of trial. It's, it's ultimately um, proof that we have punishment coming upon us and that we are going to have to endure some of that punishment and that these times are going to um, give us a great opportunity to to share the gospel in its full impact while danger may come and the uh, establishment that wants to be the religious figures of this world and wants to pretend as if they are more sovereign to, than our Lord God um, are going to oppose us. It's no doubt. Historically, we always go through these roller coasters. There's no reason to believe it will ever end. And as we see people so... Uh, ignorant of the use of the freedom that the Constitution of the United States has given us to pre preach the gospel, and we have not used it uh, wisely in um, proclaiming it the way we should have for the last uh, several years in our nation's history, um, as well as those liberties and freedoms that were given to other countries as a repercussion of what uh, America had ex had allowed for and um, its toleration of, of religion and assembly and such things in the Americas because of our origins being being very religious in nature. If we would have used it more properly, would things be different? Well, I guess we really don't know that because things are going according to the counsel of God's will, and this is how it needs to be to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so hopefully this uh, message is somewhat encouraging, helpful in understanding what's going on. And uh, I hope to uh, be there again to share another one with you in two weeks. Thanks a lot.